Peter, chapter 3, and we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 tonight, maybe just verse 1. We'll see how we go. Uh, So if you turn back to that to follow on, that would be great. And uh, let me pray as we turn there. Father, as we come to this passage, knowing that these words are your words, and trusting that as we think about them, you give understanding, our prayer is that you would renew our minds so that we might walk in your ways, so that ultimately you might be praised in all the earth. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So 2 Peter chapter 3, reading from verse 1, this is what God's Word says. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is God's word. I want to start tonight by asking you a question. How much of a thinker are you? How much of a thinker are you? I'm not asking you for your IQ. I don't I'm not really that interested in your score on Mensa tests. Uh, I'm asking, how much do you think? How often do you take time to slow down and mull something over? Now, you might say, well, it's a bit of a ridiculous question. How much do I think? How much of a thinker am I? I'm always thinking. I think, therefore I am. I am, therefore I must be thinking. So... A strange type of philosophy goes. But it's not a ridiculous question, actually. I was looking at some articles on the subject of thinking this past week and discovered that there are many different levels of thinking. Let's, let's do a little test, shall we? If you would like to raise your hand... No, I'm joking. We're not going to raise our hands at any of these level. Level one to six. There are six levels of thinking. Did you know that? This is scary. Level one... It's a bit small. Oh, you can see a bit. It's bigger up there. Funny that. Um, level one, the, the unreflective thinker. So that's the kind of person where we're just generally unaware of significant problems in our thinking. Okay? Level two would be the challenged thinker. We become aware of problems in our thinking. We think, oh, I should really think about that. The problem is we're not level three thinkers, though, where we would be the beginning thinker. So we try to improve. Ah, but we're not very good at improving. We're not very regular in our practice. That's why we should think about being level four thinkers, practicing thinkers, where we recognize the necessity and the importance of this regular practice of engaging our minds and thinking about whatever. But then there's a level five where we become advanced thinkers. Oh, we advance in accordance with our practice as practicing thinkers. We're actually getting to be quite good at engaging our minds in all sorts of different subjects. And we're becoming a bit more advanced. Then level six, the master thinker. Skilled and insightful thinking becomes just second nature to us. People are always prodding you because you're always just drifting off into thoughtful consideration and contemplation and things like that. Which one are you? Where would you place yourself along that spectrum? 
Well, you know what's striking about the different articles that I read this past week? They all basically shared the same conclusion. People in this day and age are losing their ability to think intuitively and analytically because we are often looking to technology and in particular our smartphones to do the thinking for us. It's true, isn't it? How many times in the past, maybe a week or two, have we been talking with friends or something like that and we've said, oh, I wonder what that's all about. Oh, Google it. You know, we say that, we never actually stop to think, well, I wonder if it could be this, or I wonder if it could We don't engage our minds in the subject itself. The irony is, we in this generation, in this culture of enlightenment, we think we're the smartest people who have ever lived, but three separate scientific articles tell us that we're in danger of having the dullest minds in a long time because we outsource this cognitive processing to microchips and Wikipedia. The appeal from the scientist is think, think, let's think. Let's be contemplative, thoughtful people. And what the scientist would appeal for then, in culture in general, Peter would appeal for, spiritually speaking, in the church. In chapter three of this wonderful letter, Peter tells us again why he's writing to them. This is the great thing about Peter. You don't have to think through, I wonder what he's actually trying to say here. He's really crystal clear. He's going to map it out for us again and again. This is, I'm reminding you, here's why I'm writing this letter to you. I'm trying to stimulate all of you people back then, the first century readers of this text, and everyone who would read this holy scripture after him. I want you to be encouraged to think like the master thinkers, mulling over the word of God and the subject of God and the gospel. And I think we see two main reasons for that. We see it in the whole book. That's why I asked Martin to read for us chapter one and chapter two. Contemplative thinkers will grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. That's what chapter one is all about. Grow, Mix, add to your faith Goodness to knowledge, self-knowledge, goodness, oh, self-control, all these other virtues of the faith. He wants us to grow to become like Jesus. He tells you to roll up your sleeves in doing so. So positively speaking, Peter wants us to think and mull over the deep things of God and his word because it'll help us to grow in the likeness of Christ, which is what we're called to. But on the other hand, it will also keep us from making the mistakes of the false teachers, those he calls unreasoning animals in chapter two. People who later in chapter three, as we'll see in a few weeks' time, are those who distort the word of God. They don't think about it, they just distort it and they twist it. Well, Peter says, if you want to do what I'm saying in chapter one, what the Lord wants us to do, grow in grace and knowledge, and if you want to avoid the mistake of or being distracted and taken away by the false teachers of chapter two, I want you to think. I want to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. So if you want to grow and you want to be discerning, uh, then let's focus in on God's word here. The first point tonight is simply an encouragement to you to think, think 
to love God with your mind. Peter, Peter says in verse 1, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. His subject here with the word thinking is clearly the mind. Now, thinking is the main subject of this verb, verse. We're not talking about the levels of intelligence, or we're talking about mulling something over. And the Bible actually says an awful lot about the mind, and interestingly, the battle for it. So in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked, uh, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's what we were made to do. The Lord God, in his goodness at creation, gave us cognitive ability, minds to mull, things, minds to think things over, minds that ought to be set on him, to understand him, and minds that in turn stimulate our hearts to love him. As John Piper says in his excellent book, Think, thinking is for deep feeling when it comes to the things of God. So that's what we were made for. But then when sin entered the world, something terrible happened. Something changed. Our minds, as well as everything else in all creation, were deeply affected by the fall. Because sin corrupts everything, even our minds. Our minds, as 2 Corinthians 3 tells us, are dull because of our sin. Romans 8 verse 7 tells us that our sinful minds are hostile towards God. We don't want to set our minds naturally on God. Uh, the opposite is true. So when people in this world don't think that it's worthwhile retaining the knowledge of God, Romans 1 tells us what God does with us. He gives us over to our depraved minds where we become futile in our thinking. Futile. The Bible is also clear in outlining for us that there is an enemy in this battle for the mind. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that the devil, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, whoa, that is a pretty bleak picture. And you would be absolutely right. Sin affects everything. It corrupts our thought processes. Our minds naturally are not set on what they're supposed to be set on, or should I say, whom they should be set on. But the good news is that the Bible teaches that because of the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, that our minds can be radically changed. You see, Jesus Christ died for our sin on the cross all those years ago, expressly to reverse the curse of the fall and change those who put their trust in him. And when we put our trust in him, we can think differently. Now, Peter uses the word, or the word that's used to translate Peter's word was dianoia in Greek. It's a word that means deep thinking. And the word that translates the very call of Jesus is metanoia. It's a word that means to change your mind. In other words, to turn your mind to Christ. So when you say sorry for your sins, for all of them, not just the misuse of the mind and for setting it in the wrong place, when we confess our sins before God and trust Christ, we're changed. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, changed, by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, his perfect will. That's what's 
available to us when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are then encouraged as Christians to direct our thoughts towards the good things, the noble things, the right things, the praiseworthy things, as Paul says in Philippians 4, the lovely things with a renewed mind. And the great news of that is, even as we do that, even as we mull over some things that people have written thesis after thesis about, people have written on some of the even sections of this book and the subject that it covers, they've written volumes on it. And even though some things are hard to understand, as, Paul, as Peter says later in chapter 3, we'll get to that as well, at some point, maybe in January, um, we are helped in this. God does not leave us alone. And I love this section in 2 Timothy 2. It's such a a pastoral appeal from Paul to his protege, Timothy, just as Paul is about to go to be with the Lord, he encourages him to see, even in relation to the, the ways of being a pastor and the things of God's word, he says, think over these things and the Lord will give you understanding in them. That is, in a sense, what we might call a biblical theology, an understanding of thinking in the Bible. And I want to ask Again, return to the question again. Are you a thinker when it comes to even the simple things of God? Never mind the deep things. Do we take time to contemplate who God is? What he's done for us? What his word says? Do we pour over a verse or two in order to really mine the gold from it? I mean, how many times do we look at a passage, whether an individual, small, individual study or a small group study, where we look at a passage and say, well, that says blah, 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 blah. What does that mean? I don't really know. Well, let's move on. Cup of tea, anyone? Or, you know, we, we don't actually take time to say, right, let's look at that word. Why that word and not that word? What does it mean? Well, it, it might mean this. Well, no, I'm not sure it can mean that because the chapter before, it says this. Oh, there, okay, so Scripture, interpreting Scripture, etc. We don't stop and think. We're too lazy in our thinking. I'm speaking out of personal experience, you understand. I'm sure you empathize. Are we thinking to the extent that we are loving God with all our minds? Are we being stimulated to wholesome thinking? Or have we got lazy brains? Let's look at the number of books that you've got on your shelf at home or on your Kindle. How many are unfinished or never started? Maybe we can look back at our calendars. When was the last time that we actually scheduled some downtime to think? And maybe we respond by saying, oh, I'm actually quite a busy person. I don't have time to stop and think. But I think we do. Our browsing history probably tells us that we do. I don't know how you do this, but I'd love to see just how much time I actually waste online. You know, like futile things. Yeah, I, I, I say love, but actually I mean I'd hate to. Because I know I'm guilty of wasting my time reading guff that does not matter or else prioritizing unimportant guff over the kinds of things that will actually renew my mind. I mean, do you know, I, I'm, this is confession time. This is always dangerous as a pastor. You're just like, why do I say these things? I always think that afterwards. 
but I'm going to say it. Why watch? I watched a video this week of a dog sneezing. I mean, what? <laughs> Why? That was 25 seconds it took. It was quite funny. But it was, it was like, why? Like, why? It doesn't make any sense to me. Why, why wade through Facebook posts of people you don't really know and wouldn't really like to talk to if they were in the same room with you? Why binge on box sets on Netflix? And again, I'm not being some kind of self-righteous person here. I've watched all nine seasons of 24. Like, please don't tell me there's a 10th season either. It's, I mean, we're not engaging our minds in the way that we ought to engage them. And I believe what Peter, the reason why I've camped on this verse so much this week is because I've really felt the challenge of it. Are you allowing your minds to be stimulated to wholesome thinking? I mean, if we're sitting around or talking to our friends and saying, oh, do you know what? I'm really not growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus very much just now. I'm actually being overwhelmed by the temptation that's coming in my way in certain areas. And I wonder if we ought to be less surprised if we're really not engaging our minds in the wholesome thinking that Peter calls us to. If we're not loving our Lord with all of our minds. I wonder if we should be that surprised when the church in our city and in our nation is in such decline largely because of the impact of some kind of weird social liberalism which just neuters the gospel, which turns the authoritative infallible word of God into a pick and mix. We can't be surprised about that if we're not taking time as faithful Christians to mull over and allow our minds to be stimulated to wholesome thinking over God's word. We'll fall into the same trap as the chapter two people, the unreasoned animals. I don't want to be like that, do you? I don't want to be like that. I think there's an evangelical allergy to thinking sometimes. An evangelical allergy to reading. So, here's your Puritan, boys and girls. Evangelical Puritan. I brought some books because I want to stimulate us to read. And we want to be reading the Word of God primarily. I'm going to think about that later, maybe, maybe next week. But how are you reading? It's important, actually. And I wonder where you're at at different levels of reading. Maybe you're just... Maybe you're the kind of person who just says, actually, I hate reading books. I'm not really very good at reading books. Okay? I want to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to challenge you to, to, to read a book by the end of this month. Okay? And all I'm talking about is a tiny wee one, like this. This is a great little book called What Does God Want of Us Anyway by Mark Dever. It is a quick overview of the whole Bible. You ever wonder, I wonder what the whole Bible is all about. You know, it is about Jesus but you should read something about it, okay? See how it all fits together because it gives you confidence in the word of God, confidence in the gospel, and makes you want to share it. So this little book of, what, 116 pages. That's simple. You could read that. That, So if you're an entry-level, I need a book that I'm actually going to read. I'm probably going to fail. It's going to take me two months, not one month. That's your book. A book like that. The Nine Marks series of books actually on the gospel and what is the Bible and so on, why trust the Bible, is a great place to start. They've got little books like that. Really, really helpful. What else have we got? 
Spurgeon. This is my favorite dead guy. Spurgeon uh, is a guy that I have loved reading for years and years and years. And the reason why I brought Spurgeon, I didn't bring him, wrote the book about him, is because um, reading biography, following narrative story, engaging your heart in the life of some other believer who has loved the Lord Jesus with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, who's struggled and fell like all of us do, and who's got back up and who's died faithful to Christ, there's one to read. I wept when I read that he died. He's been dead for like 100 years, but I, I don't know why. But your heart gets so engaged and your life gets so spurred on by reading the biographies of, of the ancients, the greats of the past. You want to talk to Tom Bremer about Spurgeon. He even knows more than me about him. It's wonderful. If you think, actually, I've kind of done those things, I want to think a little bit deeper about all the different aspects of theology. You know, the, the study of God. Right, where should I start? Don't give me this huge, big, thick volume because I'm not going to read that. It's really simple. I would offer you Concise Theology by G.I. Packer. He's broken down what is known as basically a systematic theology where you engage the different subjects of the Bible, though you don't walk all the way through the Bible, and he engages in them. So here is one, for example, on God's omniscience. God sees and knows everything. It starts on page 26 and finishes on page 27. How is that for concise? Does what it says on the tin. That, I took our apprentices through that a couple of years ago in our morning devotions. And it was wonderful, wasn't it? <laughs> you ever wondered about the cross of Christ? The cross of Christ is central to everything we do. Displace it from the center, and we might as well shut up shop and go home. It's pointless. The cross of Christ by John Stott. You can actually listen to this on audible.co.uk. I'm not getting any royalties, unfortunately. But the cross of Christ is one of the best books on the cross that you will ever read from a historical perspective, from a theological perspective. You know, it is just absolutely wonderful. It will move your heart, I guarantee it. If it doesn't, I'll pay for the book for you. You want to read, just not... One of the things I think we do as well is that we often read books that are just kind of entry-level books that are just on our bookshelves, so they come up, they flash up on Amazon.com and so on. I think we should be reading books that are from people who are about, you know, who've been long dead. So not just biographies about them, but their works. Here's one, The Great Gain of Godliness by Thomas Watson, which is a book that's pretty much about growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Now, these guys wrote material that could only be described as dense, right? Dense. They were not thick. It, their material was dense, and you need to read this slowly. It necessitates a slow reading. So you read one page or two pages a day, that's fine. You need to feel guilty about that. It's wonderful. Plenty of books like that. I did bring a big one. This is Tom Schreiner's book, A Biblical Theology of the Old and New Testament. I'm just giving you an example of you might be at different levels of reading. My encouragement for you to stimulate you to wholesome thinking is take it up a level. But all of that must be secondary as you work hard at learning, secondary to taking time to make time to study the Word of God in itself. We dash too quickly through our devotional times. Only when we stop and think and pause and ponder and wonder 
about what it means and why they said that and how that relates to another passage and so on. That's what really, the Lord gives us understanding when we honor him and take the time to do that. I, I, I was guilty of this only a month or two ago. Uh, I was reading through some of the Psalms in the 70s and I had read them before um, and spent some time in depth on them years ago. So in, to my shame, I just started flicking through them in my morning devotions a bit quickly and jumped to a New Testament reading instead. And actually, I went back around about Psalm 7 to 8, and I just spent ages in it because I unearthed stuff that I didn't even see the first time. I saw how it fitted together, the description of God and how he feels about sin and about what God did to remove his wrath from us. The gospel was there in that psalm in such a wonderful way. So don't rush by. Read. Engage with your reading. And work hard at learning. Um, one of the ways that you can do that is to think deeply, even in relation to reading a book, I always encouraged our apprentices to use four A's. So don't just read something. Stop and think about what it was. Think about the four A's of or abstract, argument, analysis, and application. Abstract, write out a main, the main point of what you read in one sentence. Argument, write out a bullet point outline of the author's line of reasoning. Analysis, that's, what you, what, that's asked, answering the question, what do you think? What do you actually think about the argument that was made? How does it fit with scripture and application? What will you do as a result? Think. Think. That's what Peter wants us to do. He says, I've written uh, both of them, these letters, as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Wholesome thinking. That's an interesting word to use as well. In Greek, the word for wholesome is a compound word, eli, meaning son, and krino, from which we get the word judgment, okay? Uh, so in ancient times, the biggest industry in the world was this pottery industry. And pottery varied in quality. The cheapest pottery was really thick and solid. It didn't really require that much skill to make, actually. Um, and it's unearthed in archaeological digs all the time. But the finest pottery, the finest pottery was the thin stuff, the fragile stuff. And it was often clear. It had a clear color. And it was really expensive. And it was, the thing about it was it was fragile both before and after firing. So you had to be really careful. Most times, actually, it would, it would crack in the oven. And the cracked pottery really should have been thrown away. But dishonest dealers were in the habit of filling in the cracks with this hard, pearly wax that would really just blend in with the color of the pottery itself. And this made the cracks practically undetectable in the shops, but the wax was immediately detectable when the pottery was held up to the light, especially the sun, because the cracks would show up as darker lines. So it was said that the artificial element was detected by sun testing, sun judgment. It was sun judged, and honest dealers then marked their finer product by the caption, Sincera, without wax. Sincere, wholesome. The same word to describe the kind of thinking that Peter wants us to engage in. So he's not just talking, and we're not just talking tonight, about engaging our minds in thought processes, but we want to think about the subjects that we're setting our minds on. 
Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, Paul says to the Colossians. Don't focus on the earthly things. It's not a sin, of course, to think about how you're going to live on earth to the glory of God, like how you're going to do your job to the glory of God, how you're going to study in exams to the glory of God. But we are thinking about the great things. I mentioned earlier Philippians 4 verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right and pure and lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Think about the the wholesome things that will develop a sincerity in your character so that you'll become more like Christ. The aim, of course, of taking in this information as we love God with all our mind is to be changed. It's to have minds that are morally sound, minds that inform lives that should be morally sound and in keeping with the gospel that we profess. This matters in life. There's this direct link between belief and behavior. It's unmistakable. We see it in chapter one where you see that grace and peace is ours through Uh, in abundance through the knowledge of God. This is how we grow in Christ-likeness, comes through knowledge. And we see that in verse three, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge. So the things that we believe matter in the way that our lives are lived out. And make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. And knowledge then has its effects in producing a self-control in our lives and a perseverance in being self-controlled and so on. And again, as I've pointed out, opposed to the false teachers who, like the unreasoning animals, well, they make excuses for their licentiousness. They live however they want to live because there's a connection between their belief or in particular in this subject, unbelief in the gospel and of true doctrine that results in ungodly character in their lives and judgment. So Peter wants us not only to think, he wants us to think about wholesome things, to have sincere thinking, sincere minds. And he's writing this to them to stimulate them, to wake them up. In other words, that's what the word for stimulate is in the Greek The mind needs wakened. It needs stirred up. Do you not sense that? Do you not feel that yourself tonight? I'm challenged even as I preach this. We're sleepy Christians. We can be lethargic in the use of our mind, sluggish in our faith. I think we may not be stimulating ourselves. We're probably stuffing ourselves with the junk food and not the brain food. We need the omega oils of God's word, don't we? The minds of the godly become dim, John Calvin said, and as it were, contract rust. And the sloth of the flesh can smother the truth, even once received, and renders it inefficient except the goads of warnings that come to its aid. And that's what I hope verse 1 has been for all of us this evening. We need these reminders. We need to be stirred in our thinking, don't we? We need to be stirred to the extent that 
we recognize one another's slothfulness in the church family and be, will, be willing to love each other enough to want to talk about the godly things that spur and stir each other on as well as feeling stirred by our own reading ourselves. You know how you do that, don't you? You take a sermon like Paul preached this morning and you say, wasn't it amazing that thought that, that the God who carries us saves us? Or you take this thing that you've been reading and you say, hey, do you know what I just read about in the life of Spurgeon? He described the word of God like a coal mine and we are to take the hammer of prayer and we are to mine it for the golden ore that it contains. I love that. It's so flowery and poetic. We are to stimulate each other. And above all, as we'll get to next week in verse 2, to be stimulated by God's holy, sufficient, infallible words that is more alive than a million of these put together. It's living, it's active, it searches you as we search it. I pray that you might be stimulated this week to think. Ask the person next to you, what are you reading afterwards? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Our Father,